We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Big Screen Sports is brought to you by Blue Wire's new show, On the Hook with Abner Mares. Abner Mares is a world champion boxer, Olympian sports commentator, and most importantly, dad to two little girls. Beloved by abuelas and hardcore fans alike, Abner is a pro at entertaining the world both in and out of the ring. On Blue Wire's new podcast, On the Hook with Abner Mares, we're here from his Abner, his family, fellow athletes, and other people who made the boxer the man he is. He'll talk about the state of boxing, his journey from a kid on the streets to a boxing champ, sports, music, culture, and family life. Listen to On the Hook with Abner Mares wherever you get your podcast. Episodes in English out on Tuesdays and episodes in Spanish out on Wednesdays. All right, welcome back to Big Screen Sports, the sports movie podcast brought to you by Blue Wire and this week presented by Indeed and BetOnline.ag. I am your host, Kyle Banduho. It is Rocktober on Big Screen Sports, where we've been talking the Rocky franchise during the entire month of October. But fellow Blue Wire podcast host Michael Rothstein put together just an incredible oral history for ESPN of the first movie ever covered on this podcast, Remember the Titans. Couldn't not have him on the pod to talk about it, so joining me today, you can catch his work at ESPN and the Blue Wire podcast, The Michael Rothstein Show. Michael Rothstein. Michael, thanks so much for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. I've uh, been a big fan of the pod for a while and I'm um, excited to be on it. I actually, however, did not realize that Remember the Titans was the first movie that you did, um, which probably is it should make more sense to me considering how I feel about the movie and also uh, how so many people feel about the movie that it would be one of the first ones that would get touched on on your podcast. It's something I want to revisit because as the first episode, I was an incredibly stiff host. Like I went back and and re I, I relaunched it in December with some director commentary and I just couldn't believe how I, I would like a redo at that one. But remember, the Titans is great for this podcast because it's both a great movie, but has some sports wise stuff that kind of makes you scratch your head. It was it's a very fun uh fun movie to discuss. But before we get into the the oral history you put together, which I really enjoyed, uh, tell the folks where they can find you, where they can check out your podcast. Sure. Yeah. You can listen to my podcast, which is called the Michael Rothstein show. Anywhere you really listen to podcasts, Apple podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, I think iHeartRadio, really anywhere you can listen to me. And, uh, I cover the Detroit lions, the NFL, MMA, boxing, Oral histories of sports movies, apparently, and some other things at ESPN. 
I've been there about a decade now, and that is my kind of everyday, every waking moment. So even as we do this podcast, I've got the Titans and Bills game on in the background that I'm just cursorily kind of keeping an eye on because it is NFL season. But my, yeah, I work for ESPN and I cover the Lions and I try to tell a whole bunch of interesting stories. Uh, A lot of times that sometimes we'll touch on Hollywood. Earlier this year, I wrote about Ozark because the Detroit Lions were randomly mentioned a couple of times in Ozark. And it turns out one of the lead writers at the time was a big Detroit Lions fan. So we started talking about that. And I just try to find interesting stories like that, both in sports and around the fringes of it. Well, I was telling you before we we started recording that an oral history of a sports movie is just so far up my alley. So when I I saw this drop on ESPN, uh, two decades later, remember the Titans remains relevant. Uh, how did this How did this project come about for you? What was the What made you go so deep on this movie and wanting to put together this oral history? So a couple of things actually. So this, much like the movie itself, almost didn't happen. I had come up with the idea in January. I think I, had, I think it was either when it was before Ryan McGee did the Days of Thunder oral history. I think it was when one of my colleagues maybe did a Love and Basketball oral history. I don't want to interrupt you, but I just want to shout out that when Ryan McGee was on this podcast in January covering Days of Thunder, I mentioned that it was the twenty year anniversary or the thirty year anniversary coming up, and he should do an oral history. So I do want to take partial credit for that happening. <laughs> um, and Ryan, by the way, was very kind about the oral history I did. Apparently, I just jumped in front of the line from him a little bit because I think he had gone to our bosses and asked about it, and I had already kind of staked claim and started working on it, but. Yeah, in January, I kind of just was like, hmm, I wonder what movies are kind of coming up on anniversaries. And I was going through the list of like, okay, what movies came out in 2000? I was in college at the time. And I knew Remember the Titans was in that range. I knew Varsity Blues was in that range. And I saw Titans. And I was like, all right, you know what? This is right up my alley. Let's, Let's give this a shot. So that was in January. I started reaching out to people and I got precisely nowhere. Uh, I spent probably like a week kind of reaching out, going through some people to try to get to some people. I was getting nothing. So I walked away from it because it was something that was just not necessarily assigned. It was like a passion project of mine. I, I take big swings on a lot of stories that I do oral histories and not. And sometimes they just don't work out. And I kind of chalked it up to that kept an eye on it but didn't really think of it otherwise then COVID hit and everybody was home and everybody was looking for things to do and and looking for things to write about so I was like you know what if I can't get people now I'm never going to get anybody for this oral history so I started reaching out to people again a little bit of a different tack than I took taken before and I think it was Ethan Supley who was the first person who got back to me and got back to me probably 20 minutes after I had emailed him and said, yeah, sure, whatever you need. The recently jacked Ethan Supley. Yes, he is. Yes. And uh, he was incredibly gracious with his time and very incredibly open and, and candid about the movie and about, you know, that he was a bigger guy at the time, like a, a much bigger guy. And... From there, it just kind of started going. Every week or two, I would get, and this was in March, every week, week or two, I would get 
one or two more people. And once I got Ethan, I said, okay, I have one person. Now let me cast a wide net. So literally, I went down the IMDb list of casting crew and started reaching out to anybody. If you were like the second or third casting director, I reached out to you. Like this is how I approach a lot of my bigger stories anyway. I will talk to anyone and everyone because you never know who has a story. So I just started reaching out to people and eventually people, some people, especially people who you would not necessarily talk to the media because they wouldn't get called about anything, were like, yeah, I'll talk about it. That's one of my favorite movies to ever work on. And that slowly became a theme of all the people I talked to. Uh, Rana Kress, who's the famous casting director who cast this movie. It was her first Jerry Bruckheimer movie. Uh, and she actually cast everything but Denzel in seven weeks, which is unheard of, at least back then was. I mean, you would get months, sometimes a year to cast a movie. She did it all in seven weeks. And the the talent she grabbed in seven weeks, too, because that's one of the, the ways this movie has aged so well is the, the cast a ton of them went on to big things. Absolutely. And that was one of the questions I would ask everybody was uh, when I would talk to them was, so I'm a Hollywood neophyte a little bit. So this cast now, if you tried to cast them, would cost what? And Jen Worthington was an associate producer at the time. She was like a bazillion dollars. And that, that quote always stuck with me because it's so true. I mean, Ryan Gosling's what? Like the 11th, 12th lead in this movie barely has a part, really is a minor role, and he's Ryan Gosling. I mean, that was one thing that was very apparent, like, from talking to people, whether it was Boaz Jakeen or Jerry Bruckheimer or Chad Oman, who was really, Chad Oman's the guy who got this project through. Not the oral history, he was very helpful with that too, but remember the Titans, period, got this through. And yeah, so all those people just started being willing to talk. Boaz Yakin talked to me really early in my search, and I think that helped too because all of a sudden I could go to people and say, yeah, like Boaz talked. Boaz and I talked for an hour and change. So it became one of these things of every person I got, I was able to then tell other people, hey, I got this person. And then things really started to open up a little more once I got Rana and once I got Boaz. And then Hayden Panettiere was willing to have an email conversation with me. Uh, Donald Faison, who is one of the nicest people in Hollywood, gave me a ton of time. And it just kind of went from there. Craig Kirkwood, who's now an attorney, gave me a ton of time. And, and everybody who I spoke with all said, the similar versions of this was one of my favorite experiences making movies and this is a movie i'm very proud of so i think i also happened to hit a uh, a right spot with how people felt about the film and all of this was before it became i think even more relevant after the you know killing of george floyd and all the social unrest that's gone on in america which has made this movie, I think, once again, show that it is held up because we're talking about a lot of the same issues that we were talking about, you know, that the movie was talking about, what, 40 years ago, uh, you know, and, and uh, when 40 years ago when, obviously, the real the real life story happened, and then 20 years ago when the movie came out, and, you know, that was something that, and that's the lead quote in the oral history from Donald Faison, which is saying that a lot of the issues which come back to fear still exist today, and, uh, that to me, once I think that really started going, where I started getting more and more people, and once I got Hayden and Donald, it became, yeah, this thing's definitely going to happen. It's just a matter of how many people I can get. 
Uh, Denzel, I thought there was a chance it was going to happen. It did not. Uh, him and Will Patton both were working, have been working on things, I guess, or their schedules were just really difficult, uh, to make happen, which was unfortunate. Um, the only one who was like a definitive no right out of the gate, uh, was Ryan Gosling and everybody else at least seemed to mull it over whether they said yes or no, or didn't get, uh, you know, or in some cases I just didn't hear back from them. Who is the toughest person to get that you actually ended up getting? Ooh, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think Jerry Jerry took a little while to get, but I think that was just. I was gonna ask like how what what you fished him out of because he Lord knows what Jerry Bruckheimer gets up to these days. Yeah, I mean Jerry's just hanging. He was great. He's he. I had an awesome conversation with him. We talked for about a half hour, and it could have gone a lot longer probably. Um, you know, he, he's just a busy guy. I mean, he's Jerry Bruckheimer, so. I was very grateful that he was willing to do it and was willing to take the time that he did. And I think truthfully, I mean, I don't know this for sure. I didn't ask him, but I would imagine the fact that I talked with, you know, Trevor Rabin, who wrote the score, um, which is iconic as well, which sometimes doesn't get talked about enough. How iconic that score is that I think sometimes that even is more well known than the movie, which is holds up very well. Yeah. I mean, it was used in the Obama inauguration or the Obama acceptance speech after he won in 08. And it's used after every Olympics. Like it's heard all the time. And it, I mean, I cover sports for a living. You hear that theme. You hear clips from Remember the Titans. Wherever you go, it's like a staple now. Uh, and it's and we'll get into it, I guess, a little bit more later. But like one of some of the things that didn't make the cut of the oral history was kind of how the score came about. Uh, just because, I mean, there's only so much I could fit in. I could have probably written a whole other oral history that was around 6,000 words with stuff that wasn't in this oral history. Um, that kind of leads into a question I had of what's the, the most fun snippet that you had to cut? Um, so the, some of the stuff about the score was really good that like when I so there were two things that, that were tough for me to cut. One was about the score that when it got played during the Obama, after Obama won and he's walking out to the stage to give his acceptance speech, uh, Boaz and, and Trevor are pretty good friends, or at least at the time where I, I still believe they are. And like, I think Boaz reached out to Trevor and was like, Hey, do, are you hearing this? And, and he was, and he was like, the first thing was like, he's like, am I getting paid for that? Like, you know, jo I, joking around, but like that showed to him how iconic this score held up. And that was something that I think shows how much resonance this film has on, on so many different levels. So that was one. And then the other one was a real behind the scenes type of thing, which was poker was very prevalent uh, on set at night, very often in Ethan's room. And Donald Faison was telling me that he learned how to play. He not only like learned how to play, but really got into poker to the point where he actually bought his own poker chips because of the time that he played while on set of Titans. And then when he would see world series of poker on ESPN, he would be like, I remember how to play that game from remember the Titans. Like, so like, that's just something that you would never learn, never hear from the movie. That is just kind of like a, Hey, like this is what happens in downtime when you're all stuck in Georgia on a set filming hour upon hour. Uh, those were two really interesting snippets that I think didn't get in the oral history at all. There was a little bit about the score in the oral history, but not a, a ton. 
I would love to see the footage from those poker games because like, I, I'm just curious about the dynamics because I don't know like who in that cast has real money at that point. Like, uh, you don't need real any. money to play poker. You can play poker for five dollars, you know, five dollars a hand or a ten dollar hold'em tournament. I mean, but you think about that though. Donald Faison had been in uh, Clueless at that point, and he he had a little bit of come up at that point. It's kind of interesting. It would just be interesting to see how the financial dynamics. And I'm sure Denzel wasn't chiming into the poker games or anything like that. But no, it was all the younger people. Den- yeah. My understanding is Denzel uh, did not participate. Uh, he apparently did one night like and they taught her a little bit of how to play but you know it was i think mostly just a bonding thing um that they all just really got comfortable with each other throughout making the movie because they had to be a team and they had to act like they were especially by the end and i think train the training camp portion of that of the film not the training camp you see in the film but the training camp they had to do which i talk about in the oral history to actually be in shape to make the film, I think really bonded a lot of those guys together to where they felt in some ways like a team, like a family. It sounds like some of them still talk fairly regularly, but I don't know how accurate that is. Uh, And yeah, I mean, I would have liked to have been on the wall for some of those poker games for sure. Because don't forget, too, that's when poker was really getting really big back in like 97, 98, 99, 2000. It's like post-rounders. Yeah, that's when it was really starting to grow before I think it really hit, you know, its heyday or modern heyday probably in what, the mid-2000s. Uh, so it was on – it was on the way up and these guys are all what at that point, 19 to probably 26, 27 that, you know, they're younger guys. They're all kind of in Georgia and they need stuff to do. And, and poker was one of those things that at least when Wood Harris wasn't trying to convince them to run lines at night. The, uh, the thing about training camp is, is a really, it's like a really fun snippet. You think that's something you hear from set sometimes. Like I think the most famous example is, uh, is saving private Ryan, how Spielberg had them all go through kind of a modified boot camp, but excluded Matt Damon. So they would all like resent him (laughs) just subconsciously resent him, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, but the, uh, the cast, while you didn't get Denzel, it seemed like you got a lot of quotes from these guys about very complimentary about how he, he treated them and how he seemed he seemingly spoke very highly of this of this young cast and then you had that um the kind of the touching anecdote of him being a uh, uh kind of like a goofball with with Pantieri and who was who was so much younger and i i don't even know if i have a question with that it is just always a joy to hear about Denzel Washington being a joy yeah so 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 basically the cast when they get cast for the movie, they're all super excited because they're going to get to work with Denzel Washington. And a lot of the cast, especially the younger people, are going in thinking that they might become best buds with Denzel Washington, who, while he wasn't Denzel, he was still Denzel Washington, like A-list Hollywood actor. He just wasn't necessarily first name Denzel quite yet. He's in the middle of a hell of a run right there. Yeah. He's going off the Bone Collector and the Hurricane, and then the next year he'll do Training Day. Right, exactly. And he had, he had shot 
Hurricane before Titans, actually. So he kind of knew in some ways that that was, I think, maybe going to happen. I, I don't know that for sure. Denzel, again, didn't talk to us for this. But they, the guys like Donald Faison, Craig Kirkwood, they were going there thinking they were going to become buds with Denzel Washington, and they were super excited about that. Well, Denzel Washington, when he's on set, is very much Herman Boone. He is Coach Boone. He is Coach. He is Coach. They are his players. There's not going to be this like buddy-buddy fraternization uh, that maybe they had thought. And I think that that took some of the younger cast members by surprise at first. Uh, that I forget which cast member it was that I spoke with was telling me, yeah, like they asked Denzel for a picture. And Denzel was like, no, no, not, not now. Let's get our work done. There'll be plenty of time for that after. Which, to Denzel Washington's credit, there was time for that after. And he did all of that afterward. But he was very much in focus in the film as coach Boone. I think that helped, especially the early part of the film, because I think it created a little bit of a coach versus player dynamic that you can see in those training camp scenes early on in the film that I think really helped make, make the movie what it is. And that was all real because they were kind of like, wait, what? Denzel Washington is not going to be like my best friend. Like, and it just didn't work out that way. Denzel Washington had a lot of complimentary things to say about the cast after. Uh, I forget. I believe it was Donald Faison who was telling me a story that like years later, he actually saw like Denzel on this, like Denzel was driving by and saw Donald Faison like walking by on the street and actually like stopped and like pulled over and they had a conversation. I think that was Donald Faison. So if it wasn't, I apologize. And it was a different actor, but this story was told to me and they, like he's genuinely been very good, a good person to all these people in this cast. But when they started filming, he was very much Coach Boone. There's a scene in the oral history of during the cast's training camp where he showed up one day to just kind of get the feel for what it's like to be a coach. And he actually stood on the sled and made all of them push the sled. And Donald Faison was like, man, like, I love Denzel Washington, but I really wish he wasn't here right now because, uh, you know, now I have to push this sled even harder. Uh, one guy who I don't believe I even quoted in the oral history uh, is Derek Lassick, who was one of the football coordinators. Derek Lassick played at Alabama. He played for the Cowboys. He, he along with Mike Fisher really put together a lot of, of the football scenes. Derek Lassick actually was an, a football extra in the film for a scene or two as well. And he knew Denzel from, I believe it was church or something out. They, they knew each other. So when De De this is Derek Lassick telling me this story, like when Denzel showed up, like there was that type of bond and, and there was also the football part of it. Um, Denzel also had an interesting relationship with Boaz because Denzel knew a lot more about football than Boaz. But everybody involved with Denzel Washington or everybody involved with this film spoke incredibly highly of Denzel Washington. And I'm not going to give it all away, but if you go read the oral history, there is a part about when Denzel takes decides to do the film and then he sits down and meets with Jerry Bruckheimer and with Chad Omen and like the care and time that Denzel put into the script itself uh, was, was really surprising and kind of shocking to me that he would be that invested in it. And he literally had basically notes on every page.
It is always good to hear about just Denzel Washington just being everything that you think he would be and more. You actually did quote Derek Lassick in the piece because I, I, I have a question about that when we get back from ad break. Uh, let's pay the bills and then we'll be right back. Big Screen Sports is brought to you by Indeed. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hire. You only pay for what you need and you can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try it Indeed with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is our best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Big Stream Sports is also brought to you by our old friends at BetOnline.ag. The wait is over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. Game spreads, totals, team player, and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can also get in on season opening bonuses today. Start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. And that stuff changes week to week, so that's always open. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code Blue Wire, betonline.ag. That's Blue Wire, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. All right, so we're back, and we had, you know, you had mentioned Derek Lassick, the football advisor, and uh, that that is like my dream role on a Hollywood set is to be the sports advisor because on this podcast, I just critique sports movies for forgetting the sports wrong sometimes and your, your oral history kind of goes into the fact that uh that it's kind of come out since the film like it, the titans pretty much blew everyone out in their season and they based the state championship game off a a mid-season game against marshall that was actually the the only close game they played but the last game of titans is one of my Again, I, I want to I want to say I love Remember the Titans. I think it's a great movie. It's very rewatchable. Uh, I it, hearing from Derek Lassick actually helped me because he's talking about doing a one take play, and it was a very difficult thing. And and you kind of get into uh, I I think one guy kind of gets into the the goal of what they wanted for the last play, and it wasn't they weren't worried as much about the football authenticity. It is that they wanted. The quarterback they wanted, Kip Pardue, who's playing Ronnie Bass, they wanted him in the shot the whole way, leading the way down the field. The quarterback leading the way down the field because there, there's been a few things with the last play, the last game in general. Then I'm just like, oh god, this does not square up. But I, I thought it was a very good pull from you on this quote that that got that got behind the, the the mentality of that of why they had the last play as it was that that big sideline reverse. Have you ever, when you watch this movie, is there anything that sticks out football-wise that makes you scratch your head, or are you able to watch it like a normal person and not like me? Uh, I think I'm able to watch it like a normal person. 
mostly because I watch so much football and have my entire career. So this movie came out in 2000. I was uh, a sophomore or junior at Syracuse at the time. I forget. Um, I think I was a junior because it came out in the fall of September 2000. So I was a junior in college. So really from like 2002 onward, once I graduated, I've been covering some form of football every year since. Uh, whether it's high school, college, or, or now the NFL. And so I think I've just seen so much football that I'm not like watching it for football if I'm watching a movie because football is my job. So I just don't like I probably notice more things in basketball movies than in football movies. Also, because I think I know basketball is a sport better than football. Um and yeah, I don't know. There's not a lot that like bugs me about it. To me, what bugs me sometimes in sports movies, and I didn't feel like this was the case in Titans because Kit Bardew actually did a decent amount of his own stunts. They've said he did all of them or all. He of could them. sling it. Yeah, but that he could actually like you know like I I really like the rookie of the year like the rookie of the years and the little big leagues and and like those types of movies and even Major League, which is one of my favorite sports movies growing up, but. You watch some of the mechanics of the pitching motions, and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to buy that so much. That wasn't an issue I felt in Titans because of Kip Pardue's experience playing football. So, like, that didn't scream, like, oh, wow, that's, you know, not right to me. And they had so many semi-pro players and college players as the football extras doing the actual hitting that those things didn't really square out to me as an issue. I know you brought up the last play, and the thing is, so Boaz Jaquin admittedly knew, knew very little about football. As he said, he was he's kind of a Jets fan, but, like, not really. He's a basketball guy. He's a Knicks guy. And... Like, football wasn't the reason he did this movie. He did this movie because he, he felt it was a civil, you know, he liked the civil rights message, and that was something that really spoke to him. But that led Denzel and Mike Fisher, who was the football, the main football coordinator and has been the coordinator on a ton of movies before and since, including Glory Road, which is another Jerry Borkheimer movie, which is a basketball movie. He had done Any Given Sunday, which Derek Lassick had also worked on. And... Mike Fisher basically handled everything. They came up with a playbook. They had the plays. They obviously had to focus. Titans had had to be like the veer, had to be the offense that T.C. Williams ran. They could be experimental with all the other teams of like what they wanted to do offensively, just within reason. And then in the title game, they basically had them run like the Cowboys offense, which Derek Lassick had played for. So he knew that had, you know, the Marshall team run that. So he knew that playbook pretty well. And the one thing that Boaz did was he went to Mike Fisher and said, listen, I don't know how this is going to work, but this is what I need for the final shot. This is what I want. And it's like the only time he had interrupted at all when it came to like the football part of it. So Mike Fisher was like, okay, we can do that. And they just kind of drew up a play and, you know, you, you see what it is on screen. And it's, uh, I think, I think it's an icon. One of the many iconic parts of that movie is that final play. The only bad part about it is the the supposed genius head coach on the other side is like, oh, they're going deep, cover deep. I was like, oh, like you're already in prevent defense. Jesus Christ. Wait, but here's the thing. I cover enough real football that like those things happen. So not to get too real football like, right? But so I cover I cover the Lions, as I mentioned, and in 2015, they played uh, – 
the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers on Thursday Night Football, nationally televised game. Hail Mary, God. Yes, well, you know what I'm getting to. So the defense on that play was atrocious. And when we asked Jim Caldwell about it after the game, he said, oh, well, we were preparing for them to do the back and forth thing, not the Aaron Rodgers throwing it into the ceiling thing and, and Richard Rodgers getting behind all the Lions defenders and catching a Hail Mary. Like, they just weren't prepared for that. So that's why when I hear that in, in Titans, it, it kind of the last, when I rewatched it, when I was starting to do it, I actually, like, that bumped on me of, like, wait, I've actually seen this in an NFL game before where, like, maybe the defense wasn't, you know, they thought it was going to be one thing and it wasn't that. So I guess I didn't bump up on it because I've seen something similar to that in real life. Um, and... Yeah, by the way, that play is the closest I've ever come to, like, just throwing up my hands and maybe throwing my laptop because I had everything written and literally with – I didn't even see the ball in the air. And when Richard Rodgers caught the ball, I didn't know what had happened. All I saw was the Packers running onto the field to celebrate and the entirety of Ford Field being silent. And I was like, I looked at the TV and I saw it on the TV and I was like, oh, well, all right, cool. I have to rewrite like 600 words in about four minutes. Here we go. The Lions being an accurate comparison for a losing high school football team in a movie is just the most Lions thing I've ever heard of. Uh, I'm just saying, I mean, like obviously way different like comparisons there, but uh, I'm just saying like, I, I guess I didn't bump on it because of that, because I've seen that. And I, I guess I've always lived by the mentality of, you play prevent defense to prevent you from winning. And you often see that in college and NFL, if you're going to give a team that much space to be creative. Last thing about the oral history, then I've got a couple Titans rapid fire questions for you to finish this thing out. But, um, on my, my Monday episode, we were talking about a Rocky franchise with, uh, with double G from fight game media. And he was kind of talking about that Stallone and co and the producer of the movie didn't really know you know, if it was going to be anything and he didn't, you know, Stallone didn't really realize until he drove past some, some movie theater and saw the line wrapped around the building and realized that, you know, Oh my God, Rocky's going to be this, you know, what, what Rocky is. The sense I got from the piece is that most of the actors and the people behind it kind of knew it was going to be, at least it was going to be something. It was going to be some sort of big deal or it had momentum. Is that the, is that the sense? Is that what you picked up talking to these people? Uh, I'm kind of actually a little disappointed to hear that because that, that no, that is not. Um, well, you kind of mentioned it though, that you thought that, that um, it I think of who, who is the guy who played Rev? Uh, Craig Kirkwood. He's reading that script and he's talking about how he would do anything to, to be in that movie. It seems like they all realize that the movie itself was something good. Is, is uh, yeah. I th they all, they all realized the script was something special. Um, even if, Holly, greater Hollywood didn't recognize it at first, which is true because Hollywood passed. And when I say Hollywood, I mean all of Hollywood passed multiple times. And if it wasn't for, as I mentioned, kind of at the top of the podcast, if it wasn't for Chad Omen reading this script and falling in love with it and Jen Worthington reading the script and falling in love with it and bringing it to Jerry Bruckheimer, who wanted to do sport, a sports movie and really loved the message and likes to try and tell stories that will bring people's stories to light that otherwise wouldn't. And that is the case here. Um, I don't know if this gets made, period. Because Gregory Allen Howard had 
brought it. Uh, you know, he's tried to sell it as an idea. No one took it. He said, you know, I'm going to write it as a script. He wrote it. Still no one took it. People had issues at the time with the race component of the movie that they would make it as just a football movie. But there's no way this is just a football movie because so much of the movie is the the societal aspect of it. So Chad Omen and he this didn't make the piece, but he felt a soft spot for it because he grew up in small town, Texas. Uh, in Wichita, in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, and he just he he could see so much of what his experience was a little bit growing up, a little bit in in the script, and, and so he had a soft spot for it a bit, and he just really emotionally fell for the script, and you know Gregory's a very talented writer, and they worked on it together, and and it became what it became, but I don't think anyone had that sense. Certainly, you know. The studios didn't because they gave him $20 million to make the movie. And this is Jerry Bruckheimer who like makes movies for like a hundred and, you know, I don't even, can't even think of a number, but like not $20 million. His movie is uh, Pirates of the Caribbean or at least like two movies after. Yeah. Pirates. And, but, but before that, and this is how the movie got sold, got, they ended up selling Disney on the movie was Armageddon. It just came out. He made that too. And, Chad Oman basically said, listen, Armageddon made on Saturday what it will cost you to make this movie total. Like, that's how little they had to make this movie, which is part of why the cast that they had largely was unknown actors at the time, other than Denzel. And you knew who Will Patton was a little bit. Some people probably knew who Donald Faison was from his role of Murray and Clueless. And it's interesting, another thing that didn't make the piece is... uh, how much Donald Faison wanted this role to get away from being Murray from Clueless because he felt like he needed to do something else to kind of show that he could do more than that. And obviously this really helped launch his career because he gets scrubs a few years later. And, you know, we all see where Donald Faison is now as a big star. So, you know, and Gosling had never really done an American movie before. I don't believe if he did, he had only done one. I mean, his most famous credit probably at that point was young Hercules. So, Kate Bosworth, no one really knew who she was. Hayden Panettiere was all of, what, nine or ten years old. So, like, all of these, like, Ethan Suplay was probably one of the more well-known people in the cast when the movie actually came out. Uh, so, I know we kind of got off on a, t- on a tangent here a little bit, but... This podcast is all about tangents. Yeah, so I think that you people had an idea that they, they felt like they were making something really good. They had no idea it would become what it became. And I don't think they had an idea until the Rose Bowl premiere, because so when they're in the editing room and they're they're looking at early cuts, there was a screening room cut that they all watched together. And it was a half hour too long. It was boring. The laughs weren't hitting right. Like nothing was, nothing was working. And and they were like, Oh, well, you know, maybe we just release this thing. We'll release this thing and just be on to the next. Then they had their, they, so they, but they got to work, which is what happens in movies between a first cut and a second cut and a third cut, et cetera, et cetera. When they had their first preview, I think at that point they sensed it might be something because they had, a full audience. It was in, I believe it was Burbank. Again, I, this is just me not having. So I had 112 pages of notes for this story, uh, about 60,000 words of notes for this story. So I just don't have that in front of me. But 
basically they were watching the movie in the theater with this test audience and Jerry was there and Chad was there and Jim Worthington was there. I believe Boaz was there. Some of the execs from Disney had shown up, which typically did not happen. So they got the sense that hmm, maybe someone thinks this is going to be something. And literally from one of the first scenes when Cheryl Yost is kind of nipping at the heels a little bit of Denzel when, you know, her dad is losing his job and the crowd's roaring. And at that point, they all kind of were like, we might have something here. And then after that movie was over, they, a couple of them were sitting outside and some moms came up to them and who had come to see the film and uh, had said like, hey, like really exp- appreciate that. And some people had said like, hey, this has been like, this was like my experience in school. Some children said that. So they were like, this might be something that resonates. Supposedly like Michael Eisner, who I guess is not a big hugger, um, got a big hug but from somebody who was in the theater and like it just that told them they had something. Then the Rose Bowl premiere was massive. Uh, they brought in kids like high school players all wearing their high school jerseys. And like there was a large roar. And, and that whole scene is in the oral history. So I don't want to spoil that for for people who will go and read it. And obviously, I encourage you to go to read it. But then what would happen is on premiere night, they would go to Mr. Chow's and then they would hit the theaters and every theater they went to loved it. And at that point they were like, yeah, we, we really think like this is going to be something now. Could anyone have predicted that we'd still be talking about this 20 years later? No, I don't, I don't think so because you just never know. I think there are great movies out there that are great, but don't, you know, resonate for 20 years. I think this movie is just one that holds up and you know, I, I don't get the sense any of them knew until kind of after they were done filming. Maybe they had an inkling here or there, but even now, they, you know, 20 years later, they wouldn't admit to it. Yeah, it helps that it is a great cable movie. It's on all the time, and it you, you've always got to catch a scene there. But the oral history was great. Everyone needs to go check it out. The link's going to be in the show notes. I have a couple quick rapid-fire Titans questions for you before I let you get out of here. Um, I think I already know your answer to this one, but I ask this on every episode. Is Titans a Hall of Fame all-star starter or bench warmer sports movie? I mean, I th- it's a Hall of Fame sports movie if for no other reason than 20 years later it's the theme, you know, the theme of Titans is still being played everywhere. Like you can hear you go to a high school football, maybe not now in the COVID era, but, you know, a year ago, you go to a high school football game, you go to a college football game, you go to an NFL game, you, you hear it and you hear it at the end of the Olympics. You hear it before Lakers games when Kobe was playing, which is uh, when it really hit for Trevor Robin that like that, that maybe a score would would resonate but even more so like think of how often this movie is quoted and how many quotes in the movie have become part of just the pop culture lexicon so even if the movie wasn't great and i think it's a great movie just that alone would put it in i think a very high class so i think hall of fame movie this is a longer answer but hall of fame movie i think without a doubt between the cast its resonance its message and the fact that 20 years later, people are still watching it. And, you know, I I can tell you this. My friends, who some are big sports fans, some are not, when I kind of let slip, uh, because I kept it pretty quiet when I was working on for a while with this because it was a nine-month-long project. 
um, when I let it slip to what I was working on, like my friends who are not into sports at all were like, I love that movie. Um, you know, I, the amount of people I heard from after I did this story of saying, that's one of my favorite movies. This was really cool. And these are people who usually don't read my stuff that are friends with me, but just don't like that tells you right there. I think how popular and this movie is still to this day. And Jim Worthington really summed it up the best, I think, which is you can have grandparents and grandkids both watch this movie and recite lines from this movie 20 years after the movie came out. Yeah. I mean, 20 years later, we're all talking about how Sunshine plays for Clemson right now. So it's- <laughs> Exactly right. I mean, like, that's the thing. Trevor Lawrence, the likely number one pick in the draft, his nickname solely is coming from Remember the Titans. Yeah, it, it still hits. Uh, what is your favorite Titan scene? If it's on cable, what do you have to catch? Yeah, if it's on cable and and I'm able to be home and watch it, I mean, probably that Gettysburg scene, especially, I would say... Even more so after doing this oral history because of the the way people spoke about that scene and working on that scene. Yeah, to promote the oral history, you've got a great bit in there about it. Yeah, it, it really hit even more. But I, I think that scene to me – so when I – when I watched this movie in January, I watched it a couple of times this year, you know, with the oral history and working on it. But the first time I watched it, it was in January and I hadn't watched the film for, I don't know, five, six years, probably uh, at least. And that Gettysburg scene still like brought chills up my spine a little bit and gave me goosebumps, uh, even though obviously it never happened in real life. But to, to to an extent, but not really. But yeah, I, that scene I think still the hospital scene is one that that will still maybe get get me choked up a little bit from time to time. Uh, but to me, it it's that Gettysburg scene because I think it sets the tone for the rest of the film, and it, it kind of to me it says this film isn't messing around. It's come to really um, really kind of send a message and be. Be a movie that's more than just football. Uh, who is your favorite character in the movie besides Herman Boone, besides Coach Boone? I mean, Cheryl Yost is just awesome. I think Hayden. I think Hayden stole like every scene she was in. Um, and, and you know, knowing now what her career turned into, I think that she's probably my favorite character just because I felt like every scene she was in, you laughed. She brought levity. She made some potentially serious scenes uh, that could have landed way differently and made them really, really work. So I would say her and and Donald Faison's character. Um, I, I also really enjoyed in the film because I just I like that story arc that they really built with him. So I would say those two probably, and I'm not only I'm not saying that because they agreed to talk to me for the oral history, and some people might think that, but I felt that way beforehand. I really, I, I really enjoyed those two characters um, a lot. I know a lot of people that I spoke with for the film basically talked about how they felt Ryan Gosling stole almost every scene because he's not in a lot of them in the film. But you remember him and, you know, obviously a couple years later he's doing The Notebook and he is now Ryan Gosling. But 
he, you know, I guess for me, it was more those two characters than, than Ryan Gosling. But I know for a lot of people I spoke with about the film, Ryan Gosling was the one that maybe wasn't their favorite character, but really they think thought like added a layer of levity, a layer of comedy, a letter layer of, um, just scene stealing, um, that maybe some other characters didn't. Uh, I mean, Ethan's character, Louis Lastic was also great. Um, it's very lovable. Yeah. I, I would say those would be, those would be the ones. But to me, if, if you asked me, like I had to pick one, I would probably pick Cheryl Yost. And if you gave me one that had to be on the football team, it would probably be PD Jones. Yeah. If anyone is curious about how this podcast feels about Ryan Gosling, go listen to last month's episode covering crazy, stupid love, which might as well have been the Ryan Gosling appreciation hour. But Michael, the oral history was fantastic. Glad you came on the podcast to tell me about it. Tell the folks again where they can follow you, where they can check out the oral history. Yeah, so you can see the oral history on ESPN.com. You'd have to search for it now. I just remember I would recommend searching Remember the Titans and my last name, which is Rothstein, or you know, Remember the Titans relevant 20 years later as keywords uh, on uh, on really Google or you know DuckDuckGo or really anywhere you search for your podcast search for you know your stuff on the internet you can read me on espn.com you can check out my podcast also part of the blue wire podcast family which is the michael rothstein show we talk a lot about the detroit lions over there we have some fun with some other stuff too have a bunch of interviews with people here and there we did i also did part of an episode talking about remember the titans that you can find that podcast episode uh if you dig back a little bit and i get into a little bit more of kind of how the how the oral history came to be. So that is where you can find me and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Rothstein. And if you enjoyed this episode of Big Screen Sports, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate, review on Apple Podcasts. Episodes of Big Screen Sports drop every Monday and occasionally the fun Thursday bonus episode like this one. Little scheduling change. Next Monday, we are doing this month's non-sports movie of the month, keeping the theme with Rocktober. We are covering School of Rock with my good buddy Mike Schubert. And then after that, next week, we are doing Rocky, the original Rocky one with the guys over at Rocky Minute. And we will catch you next Monday. Thanks for listening. All right, man. That was that was fun. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash blue wire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.